Hello and welcome back to the One Take Show. In this episode, we are in conversation with Mr. Shravan Kumar Yamanur. Sir is a practicing advocate, and previously he has been a consultant for Department for Promotion of Industry and Internal Trade, and also Department for Economic Affairs. In this episode, we talk about Sir's journey with law, his experience with the legal industry. We also talk about one of my favorite topics, that is international investment arbitration, and especially looking at it from an Indian perspective. So if you like this episode, make sure you like, share, and subscribe to the channel. If you have any suggestions or feedbacks, write them down in the comment section. I would love to read them. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, let's start the podcast. You want something? Go get it. Period. And one, we are recording. Hello, sir. Welcome to the One Take Show. I am so excited to have this conversation. I think everyone who's at all ever followed either disputes or international arbitration international law in general absolutely loves your journey and wants to learn more and more about it and i think to have this opportunity to speak with you and to learn from your really valuable experience something that is so unique and something so celebrated is really a golden opportunity so thank you so much for joining me for this conversation and thank you so much for your time yeah thanks kaushik it's good to be on your show Thank you so much, sir. So before we begin and start talking about the illustrious theme that we have, and I truly believe that anyone who's interested in this would definitely get a lot to learn from this episode. Uh, I think there is a lot that we can learn from your own personal experience, and as in how, uh, what inspired you to get into law, and what has been your journey so far with law, and what has been your major takeaways from it. So maybe we can start with that, sir. Yeah, sure. Um... yeah so i had a checkered you know history in that uh, in that man if you look at it because i initially began after my 12th grade in engineering so i did a year of engineering but somehow it didn't feel i wasn't really happy there so i decided that i should be doing something that suits my set of skills and that's when by chance someone in my family told me that there is something called national law schools so i'm from hyderabad and in hyderabad people are focused on iit engineering so that that was my limited knowledge as well but once i found out there are something like national law schools and there is it's not that you just have to be a you know typically in rural india and generally in cities they feel lawyers are uh, you know pleaders under you know sitting under a tree so so i had i had a similar impression to be honest and uh, though i knew lawyers abroad and attorneys uh, you know in usa or in uk etc well it's a respected profession i never had a chance to really interact with a lawyer before so so that was my journey and then when i found out there are national law schools i wrote the common law admission test and i joined uh, nuals coaching so that's the national law school in kerala so i did my five year course there and it was a it was a wonderful time in college i did a number of moot court competitions and various uh, competitions there as a, i was also a debater in college so from so i enjoyed my time and that was when i initially my interest was in international relations even prior to joining law school so that led me to also get interested in international law so that was the journey for me and i had wonderful teachers who like one of our professors mr hari so he was our teacher who taught us public international law 
and uh, it was it it really opened my eyes to see the use of rule of law and rec- recognizing how you know re- uh, public international law is no longer just a soft law there are so many ways for enforcement of public international law today and it was in that context that i learned about international investment treaties where a private individual is able to enforce their rights under international law and uh, so that that's how i got fascinated uh, in internet to you know with this subject right right sir i'm absolutely giddy and excited about this because uh, i think i've already told you this a consult i sort of had one session where we have seeked your guidance on uh, our preparation for fti moot but right now i think i've completely fallen in love with international investment uh, treaty arbitration and i think anyone who's listening to this the reason why i keep saying this because it's perhaps not that common place because i've not really interacted with a lot of seniors who are specifically working in international law and that to boiling it down to international investment treaty but you've had a very celebrated uh, experience recently so you've been working you previously worked i believe with uh, uh, department of external affairs and then you've uh, recently started working with uh, uh, i don't want to get this wrong so i'm going to read this right for this episode it is department of promotion of industry and internal trade right sir yeah. and uh, you've been working as a consultant so i just want to understand like how did this uh, trajectory formulate itself was it like you've targeted it throughout your uh, law school and then entering into the industry or did it just happen after one step at a time yeah so from law school when i stepped out so for me dispute resolution has been my main area of interest always so while you know i do enjoy international arbitration and i enjoy international law for me it's uh, as a individual i en- enjoy oral advocacy and uh, so it's for me even court practice is equally fun and uh, i believe a lawyer should be wholesome and have a knowledge of both international law and have a strong grounding in their domestic law so where i initially stepped out and joined in as a in-house counsel in a company but uh, there it you know it was more of a court contract kind of work which uh, which was not my cup of tea so that's when i realized okay th- this isn't uh, the way i want to go ahead i want to be in dispute resolution i want to do uh, you know international disputes eventually but before that i wanted to have a decent understanding of uh, litigation though i had done a way, uh, you know a few internships with uh, with leading senior advocates including mr p p rao and mr k t s tulsi in supreme court but uh, i mean as a intern you really don't get involved in the actual practice so that's the reason i stepped out i joined mr rajiv datta he is a senior advocate in the supreme court of india and he has previously acted as arbit you know as an arbitrator in some icc arbitrations he's done a few other international arbitrations and he is a member of the iba uh, i think the iba board for uh, mediation so i felt he, that would give me a platform and an experience to get into international disputes so that's how i joined his office I, i i was there for a few years assisted him in some arbitrations as a you know you can say like a tribunal secretary and uh, 
in addition to that obviously i was uh, assisting him as as a junior counsel before uh, the supreme court of india and the delhi high court so while this was happening i was still keen to explore my opportunities like uh, i knew this was a stepping stone but eventually i want to pursue public international law or international investment treaty etc and i was regularly following uh, wrote a few articles on the subject and was regularly following this area and that's when uh, i mean the uh, department of economic affairs in the ministry of finance which is the leading agency of india for negotiating investment treaties and for handling the investment disputes they came out with a notification uh, seeking applications for a legal cell that they were creating at that time and this was in 2015 so they came out with a notification and even now frequently they do come out with notifications so any of the listeners any of the viewers who may be interested in that i think that's one thing you should free, you know keep a lookout for opportunities uh on you know through it can be you have a lot of websites and blogs nowadays which follow government jobs so that was how i identified this post and i i i was really astonished because it really fit what i wanted to do and it came at the right time in my career when you know i had graduated i had a few years of experience as a counsel and i felt this was this would help me so i took it was you know at that time there were a lot of uh, questions in my mind as well whether that's a good step moving away from practice being a consultant with government should i do that should i go for a masters or you know should i join the government so obviously there were many questions in my mind but i knew that this was a unique experience and i i also wasn't sure how often such an opportunity would come by so okay. i applied for the position interviewed for it so there were a bunch of uh, you know ias officers and i think indian economic service officers who were on the interview board and i got waitlisted actually i didn't get selected i was on the waitlist and uh, pretty much after that i i thought uh, okay that didn't happen and at that time to be i didn't even know that there was a waitlist i thought that's uh, limited to you know railway tickets but i realized that okay there is something like this in government even for government posts uh, later on when i was informed when i joined so year after that i got a call from the government and they told me that uh, okay they, you had been waitlisted a year ago there is uh, there is a vacancy now if you're interested to join please do join us and i just grabbed the opportunity i said okay this is something i really want to do and in the meanwhile i had completed a postgraduate diploma in international law and diplomacy because as i said my interest remained and i felt being while i was working in supreme court and while i was doing a lot of domestic law just to hone my skills and to keep in touch with the subject i did completed the diploma course from the indian society of international law and uh, so i had the diploma but and it was it helped me when i joined the uh, department of economic affairs as a legal associate and started uh, a journey in negotiation of these treaties and uh, formulating the policy on investment issues before 
G20, WTO, BRICS, all these kind of multilateral forums. So along with the legal aspects, there were policy uh, you know, issues involved. And that that was that was that was what motivated me to you know, join mm-hmm. the Department of Economic Affairs at that time. Right. right. Uh, so, yeah. No, no. Please, so, please continue. Yeah, please. yeah. No, no. So I joined DEA, and it's it's it was fascinating to uh, negotiate treaties. And at that age, uh, you know, a few years into my you know practice, to get an opportunity to actually sit at the table on behalf of Republic of India and negotiate a treaty. It, it, was, uh, it was a very good feeling. And I must say that uh, many of the officers who I interacted with, they were always welcoming, they trusted our advice, and there was a lot of camaraderie. And with that kind of an environment, we had a good opportunity to really contribute even during the negotiations to you know, speak on behalf of Republic of India to arrive at solutions, and here and this was an uh, this was interesting for me, especially because prior to this, I was more I was part of an adversarial system, where you know as a counsel, you're uh, you're trying to show that you're right, but uh, when it, when it comes to treaty negotiations here, it was completely different. We had to arrive at a solution, and uh, you know make the other side equally comfortable. And often uh, that requires you to hone down, you know, to actually uh, try to stop being an advocate, but be more of a, you know, negotiator. And that uh, that was uh, a, a really a good experience for me. It helped me grow as an individual and also as a lawyer. I feel that it gave me a new perspective on how to approach the subject. And uh, they, we, we've interacted, I've interacted with, uh, you know, I've uh, represented India in bilateral negotiations and I was part of the negotiating team for RCEP, which was, one, which was a large uh, mega trade deal with 16 countries. So I've seen uh, these, uh, these plurilateral negotiations. And I must say that uh, all the, I, I, I've, I've made a lot of friends in that journey. A lot of the negotiators from the other countries I have, you know, today our friends and uh, we had our differences, obviously, while representing our countries. But it's really beautiful to see how, you know, people with different cultures, different languages, different view of the world, but they get together and we're all basically the same. So I think if you have that in mind, it's easy to arrive at solutions on the negotiation table. So it, uh, that, that was my experience in DEA. Now, along with negotiations, as I said, uh, there were disputes. Uh, India obviously hires uh, outside law firms and uh, you know and councils uh, to represent uh, the Republic of India. We unlike uh, unlike the United States, for example, which has an in-house team that represents uh, United States before you know all for, for all investment treaty disputes. India continues to engage external law firms and councils. So we played more of a role in ensuring that uh, what was being said by the councils, what was being filed by the councils is in line with our policies, is in line with our you know, future negotiations, is in line with international investment law because we continue to deal with it on a daily basis. So it, that was more of our, uh, you know, it was a more limited work there. Uh, but we were uh, 
you know involved keenly involved in the disputes and in trying to and the benefit of that was that uh, we could use that experience even in our negotiations so while we continue to negotiate our treaties the experience in the, in the disputes or in our, uh, would help us in our negotiations and at times something we learn in our negotiation would be useful in giving advice in in the treaty disputes so it was uh, so that was the mixed uh, experience that was there in department of economic affairs i was there for uh, almost 3 years and uh, after uh, subsequent to that i have uh, i now i have my practice and i work with uh, a, a law firm pgnday law offices uh, we represent the republic of india in a few investment treaty disputes uh, and in addition to that uh, i have also uh, i also advise the department as, as the long name that you try to repeat so dpiit so earlier it was uh, when i joined it was uh, you know before i joined it was called dipp it is now it's now called dpiit so i joined there in the fdi policy section where i advised them on india's you know policy stand in international forums so as i said so the experience i had in da on policy issues before you know g20 or wto or brics sco so a lot of multilateral organization nowadays a lot of acronyms so so before them you to to have a consistent investment policy and you know mandate and to ensure that what we are saying is uh, you know in the, in our interest so that's the attempt there along with that i do deal with a few uh, you know concerning the reform of the fdi policy that goes on so the experience i've had in the year has helped me assist them in that so that's my uh, current uh, role right now right right sir and i think you working in with domestic laws and having a practice in supreme court has that specifically helped you out because my previous conversations with any advocate who's or or a lawyer who's working in international law uh maybe international arbitration they've preferred or they've uh, chosen a path of llm from uh, from foreign universities and then choosing to work in international law firms and that's how they've entered that field so you were decided to go about a different route and that has landed you working with the government uh, of india itself so what what is your comment on that so yeah i think uh, that that is a traditional way and no doubt i think uh, that's the more more common way as well even now it makes sense because uh, doing a masters and then going abroad you have a you do have a lot of opportunities though uh, i see now that many students are going for llm so there is a fierce competition and you have good quality lawyers in india you have good quality law students and lawyers who are going out and are you know working with these law firms i also observe that a uh, few uh, you know i have been observing this trend that many people are doing a llm and even coming back to india and then they work with law firms here so no doubt any masters in a field will help you uh, study that in depth and that will give you certain set of skills but uh, for me uh, i you know it just so happened that i got this opportunity to learn while working so even even though i may not have a masters in international investment law the fact is that uh, having worked 3 years negotiating those treaties interacting as i said and some of the negotiators on the other side were really amazing like i can recall uh, a few countries 
where the negotiators were really experienced and uh, we learned a lot even about the subject while interacting with them so that uh, i think this is an approach which is useful if you want to be in india if you are getting an opportunity and you can always go for a llm i think uh, it's in india that you know we have this uh, uncalled for pressure of you know uh, doing certain things within a certain age limit but uh, in a you know when you go abroad that's not how uh, that's not how things are so people are more flexible they do realize they'll gain some experience and then do their masters so that's always an approach but for me as i said since my interest was to my interest continues to be you know acting as a counsel to hone to develop further my skills as a you know as a in oral advocacy and to represent uh, people in courts i felt that uh, for me a masters at this stage wouldn't make sense because uh, represent uh, going uh, going to supreme court or going to the high court allows me to continue to expand my understanding of domestic law to use my experience uh, you know so it's it's a given as i said i try to translate whatever experience i have in domestic law into international law and at times i develop i learn something in the international law sphere or from the international law firms which i find very useful when i'm practicing domestic law so and that's the reason i prefer this route you obviously going abroad the it's better pay you may have better living conditions as well but uh, i don't know if you'll uh, to i mean there are many other factors like if you want to be in india you feel that india is growing and that's why i said there there's so many good lawyers today in india we are a leading field so i envisage uh, you know going ahead where india can be a, the country that's providing this kind of legal advice today people go to london they go to new york and they engage law firms all the way from east asia all the way from you know africa they are going to europe they are going to america and they are engaging law firms where so on the other hand if they engage law firms from india if they engage lawyers in india who are well versed with international law who are well versed with international investment law for example we can provide them uh, you know services at a much reasonable rate and retain the same quality of uh, you know work and that that i think that's where india is uniquely poised with our ability to speak you know english with the english common law background and uh, being a global powerhouse being this uh, you know uh, economic powerhouse today we have the ability to do that in the near future so i feel i uh, want to explore that kind of work and going abroad uh, secondly for me was that if i did go abroad i don't think i would uh, have this experience in the local courts there because the, there it's uh, you have a clearly divided work and the lawyers there who are doing international work are unlikely to appear in the local co- local courts or be developing their skills in domestic law but uh, here i uh, fortunately i you know uh, i am getting an opportunity to hone my skills in domestic law represent you know go to courts and also continue to be in the international law sphere so i think uh, to each his own journey uh, that's the beauty of life and uh, that, that's how it should be right 
right so and i think you already said this that you've always enjoyed the practice of law that involves uh the oral speaking and i think you wouldn't have or anyone wouldn't have gotten that opportunity if they uh, resorted to llm or going abroad and settling as you suggested that it is something that comes with the virtue of practicing in courts in india and learning about the domestic law and then possibly uh, applying that in your practice anywhere for that matter um with that sir, i think you've also mentioned that now uh, with the law firm that you're working and uh, the advisory or the consultancy or your engagement with the uh, dpiit now you've uh, you you're working in close tandems with international investment law so if i were to ask you sir what are your major takeaways from this experience right now and uh, what is it that you would advise the students or the fresh legal aspirants who possibly seek to follow your footsteps and what is it that they can do that you believe should be done by any student well you know when i i i still feel i am at the beginning of my journey so but despite that with the little knowledge i have gained so far my advice would be that uh, to have an approach where you have a complete understanding of the subject and not narrow yourself one must understand that arbitration is only a method of dispute settlement right it will have certain procedures but what will really help you be a good advocate or be a good uh, lawyer in this field will be a thorough understanding of the substantive laws so you must know what is foreign investment what it's not, investment treaty is only a part of the global regime that deals with uh, investment law so for example in india we have the foreign exchange management act we have an fdi policy that governs how foreign investment enters the country so an understanding of that or an understanding of how foreign flows happen what are the restrictions they are facing uh, what are the conditions that they are allowed what's happening globally like we are seeing a trend recently where foreign investments are facing more scrutiny across the world whether it's united states whether it's australia whether it's the european union there everyone's issuing directives for scrutinizing foreign uh, investments and there's a reason behind it there, there is because there's a growing understanding that uh, one must scrutinize who is investing in your country where the money comes from without doing that allowing investment in the country can be you know dangerous and once it's there the investment protection treaties come in and you're bound to treat them in a particular manner so therefore uh, you know you i will say that you should understand all these aspects and uh, i that was the, that was one thing in dpiit i continue to learn and it's really fascinating to see how the fdi policy works how investments are flowing and so in addition to this in uh, you must know the substantive field so you can see there are a lot of oil and gas disputes there are a lot of uh, you know uh, you have construction disputes mining disputes so an understanding of the substantive law in those areas will make you a better lawyer when you deal with international investment law even if it's a even though it's a bilateral investment treaty dispute an understanding of those subjects uh, will ensure that you can effectively represent your client so that would be my advice to whoever is listening wonderful wonderful so i think this level of commercial awareness or as we say the uh, the knowledge of not just the statutes and law but the knowledge of the industry in totality 
and uh, to have that level of uh, awareness about everything would definitely as you suggested uh, makes up for being a good lawyer being a good advocate in whatever field we are practicing and i think it is to the extension of that i try to make this conversation as non selfish as possible because all my subsequent questions about the bit in india and uh, the uh, the various ancillary questions that are is something that i'm personally very much vested into and want to learn about uh, nonetheless i think since you've already sort of worked in tandems with the government and i think this allows me to ask you about how exactly is the indian bit the, the model bit that we have right now what is your conceptual impression of this bit and uh, before we uh, get into the ancillary questions what is your idea as to how exactly do you visualize our bit as the model bit that you have now which is which was approved by the cabinet in december 2015 uh, was a model was that was created after a few decades of experience uh, post the negotiation of the i'll call them the earlier generation treaties so during the it was only during the 90s that india entered into this uh, market of uh, you know investment treaties the though from the 1960s countries had began negotiating treaties india was not keen to negotiate the treaties and from what i understand is that the government stand was always that uh, we have a, a constitution we have a rule of law so there's nothing for the foreign investors to fear we have an independent judiciary so i mean we can handle i mean there cannot be any treatment that would be discriminatory or that would really be so unfair so therefore uh, this was the stand of the government of india but uh, after the opening up of the economy in the 90s i i guess they were they were at that situation given the status of the economy there was uh, i think all the departments agreed or throughout the government everyone agreed that there was a need for entering into investment treaties and uh, that was the reason that the country began negotiating and there was a model at that stage which suited india at that stage where we needed certain you know kind of investments where our economy was at a certain position so that uh, the model bit of the uh, 1993 suited the situation that existed then but in uh, 2013 or 2014 i think the india of 2013 or 2014 was vastly different from the india that were, you know was there in 1990s so i think that that is what was reflected in the model bit and we must always recognize that uh, this is not something unique to india the evolution of a model bit or changing the model bit or uh, you know is common throughout the world so recently the canadians have revised their model bit all right and uh, you will see that they have they have also added certain elements because what's happening is that the earlier generation bits were so broadly worded that uh, they were open to any kind of interpretation there was whatever the tribunal said whatever the tribunal felt was international law or whatever the tribunal felt was the intention of the parties became uh, law now this uh, when countries realized the impact that this would have 
and when they realize that uh, with more and more foreign investments entering into each country this meant more and more interference by a tribunal or the or the, also that the impact of these treaties would be larger than they were in the 90s the impact was more so that was the reason they realized we need to balance these treaties and this is a global movement I, you know go, a global movement i would not say that this is just a indian decision and that's how it was in that context that india decided and uh, i and no doubt the white industries decision uh, must have also nudged them further but my reading is that uh, there was already a discussion there was already an awareness and uh, you know our uh, officers in government or our politicians they were observing and well aware of the decisions that were happening under nafta or by the exit tribunals or under other treaties so it's not just the fact that uh, you know white industries happen but the fact that uh, all of this together combined and the fact globally there was a change that led to a revision of the model bit and this model bit of 2015 is india's attempt to balance the rights of states to regulate with the rights of investors so i right. think it's that kind of a balance that was uh, tried to be achieved now there i know that uh, many people uh, write about the model bit many people have criticized the model bit and you know often i've asked a few of them i don't want to take any names but i've asked a few of them to even produce a model i suggested that uh, someone you know why don't you balance the rights of the state and the investors to create a model that balances that i'm sure uh, there's nothing preventing you to uh, create such a model publish the model say that this is my model bit so <laughs> i mean uh, th- this is uh, this is uh, i know that there's a lot of uh, you know backlash that uh, and i've seen it more not from the countries i've negotiated with and that's the funny part i have nego- we've negotiated the model bit subsequently so when i stepped into dea already the model bit was in place and uh, you know the negotiations had begun for a fresh set of bits and that also shows that india's india is not trying to you know go away from this global regime or india is not delegitimizing this regime india continues to be an active participant and uh, I, there is no doubt in my mind that uh, whatever the political party may be or whoever is in government everyone recognizes the value that fdi brings into the country and everyone wants that the country has a good name globally and everyone wants to attract investment to the country to help the economy it's just that there may be a difference in how that can be achieved and there may be a difference in where that line lies right but but the fact is that uh, the model bit is india's attempt it's an it's a negotiation text it says that this is india's preferred text that's all that the model bit says no one can enter a negotiation and say that this is that this is it this is the model bit we can't go beyond it can a negotiation occur in this manner it cannot and it doesn't practically and that's and uh, that's not how government functions but the way it's portrayed in in indian media surprisingly and and, and that's the reason i'm saying i've seen uh, there are a few authors or a few 
persons yeah. who frequently are attacking mm-hmm. you know the model bit and anything that india does in this sphere but i feel it's a bit unfair i don't see them equally being vocal about uh, uh, you know anything that an investor does or anything you know following what uh, even other countries do for for that matter uh so this is my take away and i have seen the reaction of uh, many countries many i'll tell you that uh, much of the developing world has appreciated india's model bit we you know i uh, they have actually told us that you know we we really appreciate what india is trying to do the change that they're trying to bring and we are also trying to adopt something similar and in the recent past we are seeing those changes happening now yeah. i gave you an example of the new canadian model bit they 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 have a few further restrictions on what is the minimum standard of treatment and they have a few you know further restrictions on the isds mechanism how it will go about because everyone's realizing the developed world and the developing world is realizing that we can't let a bunch of private Uh, you know individuals decide the fate of the sovereign it's a it's a legitimate way but it must be done within a certain mandate it cannot be unlimited and i everyone uh, that, that, i think that's the attempt to where it's going and uh, the funny bit is that when it comes to two developing developed countries now i'll give you an example of the recent uh, uk australia free trade agreement which has a investment chapter you'll be surprised to learn that they dropped the isds mechanism altogether the countries decided we don't want investment treaty arbitration but the same countries when they negotiate with a developing country insist that they will only achieve fairness or they'll only achieve have justice if there is investment treaty arbitration now these actions are you know genuinely cause concern to developing countries to the leadership of the developing countries because you when the developed countries are indirectly so it you're indirectly trying to say that we have rule of law you have no rule of law the moment i, I agree to an investment treaty arbitration mechanism in investment treaty what are the implications if you're having two sets of agreements for developed countries and developing countries so this this is an ongoing debate in the field and uh, as i said the, for me my understanding is that the model bit is a attempt to balance the rights no doubt there can be based on the experience in the negotiations based on uh, you know the fact that india is now also going to be a source of fdi going forward and we must be aware that it's not just that india is uh, at the as a acting as a respondent you have a growing number of cases where indian investors are actually uh you know filing treaty claims against uh, foreign countries so with that i'm sure that the model bit in 10 years time or 20 years time will have to change and it may be a different kind of a text based on the economic and political reality of the country then and that's how any country works right wonderful so this answer has made my job both easier and difficult 
easier why because it has sort of summarized and answered most of my curiosity when it comes to how exactly is pid performing and all difficult why because most of my <laughs> subsequent questions were sort of allegations to how indian pid is protectionist in nature um but nonetheless i think uh, what you've said is very interesting and i uh, the only reference that i can draw from my limited knowledge is to what uh, uh, rumana islam writes continuously on developing countries and the status of fpt clauses that have been included and how it is interpreted when the one of the parties to the arbitration is a developing country and what impact it has so in this context uh, i think my only substantial question in this part of the conversation would be that there is an allegation uh, from the people and i would like to run this by you to have a rather specific answer to that is that indian bit is protectionist in nature wherein it has a different sort of an uh, in definition for investment it has a very different fet clause where it only talks about the minimum treatment uh, standard and uh, so what is it and why is it that india has sort of uh, adopted this form of a model bit is it because of all the reasons that you've already shared with us or is it some other, some other possible reason that we should be aware of no so when the model bit in 2015 when there was a revision you can see the manner in which it was done first let me highlight that with the manner in which it was done was there was a consultation with experts some experts were consulted the model bit was drafted then the draft model bit uh, was uh, you know there was a report by the law commission on the draft model bit they made certain recommendations then the all subsequently the draft model bit was also placed on the mygov website for public stakeholder consultations so it was a transparent process where uh, many uh, the draft even before it was finalized was put in the public forum and views were taken from across the world when we put, when the government decides to put a text on mygov it's open for the entire world to respond and you i've seen this recent trend even i think the canadians did the same thing with their model bit i've seen recently that australians also you know welcome views on their model bit so we have we have a transparent system as a democracy and that was followed and the model bit came into place here again we must remember that the model bit is a negotiation text what uh, and there will always be room for negotiations but a country is well within its sovereign right to say this is what we envisage to be the model for us and that's what has happened so that let's uh, just to put that in context now regarding the specific points about uh, you know what you've raised concerning like for example the minimum standard treatment now, this is not something unique to india minimum standard treatment you can see the origin of that comes from nafta the nafta investment chapter always spoke of minimum standard of treatments and the negotiation uh, you know the member countries of nafta that is the united states canada and mexico have often clarified and given restrictive interpretation of that minimum standard of treatment linking it to customary international law now if you see the origin of minimum standard of treatment it was way prior to the bits coming into force in the early 20th century there was a discussion first of all whether there is a minimum standard of treatment and many countries refused that there is not even a minimum standard of treatment 
all right there is a famous calvo doctrine which the south american countries followed and they said if you are investing in my country if you are participating in my economy if you are going to use the labor from my country if you are going to use resources from my country you want to use the laws of my country but you say you want special treatment they right. said that won't happen we are going to give you national treatment you you come here you'll be treated as good as you any you know domestic companies treated but uh, the tendon because capital exporting countries were not comfortable with that and they felt that no there should be some minimum standard and that led to you know the growth of the bits to establish that minimum standard and it should actually be welcomed now for example if india says that we follow minimum standard treatment and make reference to customary international law you are creating state practice it shows that india is accepting that there is a customary international law minimum standard and only uh, you know that and the standard exists it's welcoming mm-hmm. the fair and equitable treatment uh, article was too broad and now globally if you see costum you see any of the recent treaties whether it's tpp which is you know some claim to be the gold standard the negos the member countries of tpp claim that that's the gold standard the people who negotiated rcep will claim that's the diamond standard but the point is that everyone is going towards that minimum standard of treatment because they recognize that the terms fair and equitable though are welcoming and no doubt one should be fair and equitable leaving it open to interpretation such terms leads to uh, some sometimes leads to such interpretations beyond which the negotiation you know the sovereign countries who negotiated those treaties intended and that is the reason that you have the minimum standard and uh, listing it out specifically that these are the minimum standards we're talking about and if you see those minimum standards in the model bit they are i think they cover most of the concerns of any foreign investor right right sir and i think what you said is very interesting because fvt as uh, some scholars suggest is just an addendum to uh, the minimum standard of treatment some say that fvt can be autonomous it could be a shopping list sort of a clause like most some particular bits i have out there except there have been traditional after fvt clauses which have made a reference to customary international law in general which i think blurs the line between minimum standard treatment just cogens and what fvt has been but very specifically if there is to be a higher threshold for let's say violation of clauses like doj or denial of justice or let's say there is a violation of arbitrariness or something of that sort and if it were to happen why not list it down in the minimum standard treatment itself and rather make a confusing reference i think that's a very interesting take sir yeah i think uh, as i said this is not just india but you if you map any of the recent agreements globally that's been the case it's just that i feel at times india becomes a soft target but uh, but it's it's a global practice as far as minimum standard is concerned i think uh, today most countries agree with that and as a, the origin was there in the 90s when nafta was the one that introduced minimum standard of treatment so here again we must remember that bits were a european invention and the europeans were the one who you know negotiated a lot of these bilateral investment treaties but uh, introducing investment liberalization in introducing investment chapter as a part of a free trade agreement introduction of certain restrictions like minimum standard etc 
was a contribution by the United States and Canada, and it's reflected in the Canadian model, for example, or the recent CAFTA. If you see any of the agreements or the CETA between EU Canada, you will see minimum standard of treatment there. Right, sir. And in fact, it is CETA only that makes a very interesting choice of words when they list down the grounds of FPT violation very specifically, and then so uh, converts the legitimate expectation part and uh, making it only to specific references being drawn by the host state through any investors, and then subsequently also making a point that those the legitimate expectation does not allow the parties to bring a claim against something that was done under right to regulate, that was done for the public policy, which is which is an interesting mix of things. You are a developed country, you're supposed to be making and uh, inviting investment, but also making the stronghold. And then the criticism comes again back to the developing countries, not Canada, but India. When India attempts to do something of this sort, when that India wants to make a clause which is substantially strong for uh, for a host state, which again is a negotiation tool, as you've already suggested, it becomes a criticizing point by its own media. No, absolutely, absolutely. It's uh, There are individuals who are doing it, but the point is, it's an attempt. It's always good to have healthy criticism, positive criticism, and and there's, in my mind, there's no doubt that there, it may not be a perfect document for every negotiation. These are bilateral, uh, you know, relationships that countries have. So any treaty must reflect that uh, the reality of that relationship. And that, that's why I said when two developed countries are negotiating, they're willing to even drop the investment arbitration mechanism. But India, whether it's whether we have negotiated with a developing country whether India has negotiated with the developed country, you will see that India is more consistent in that manner. It's, and it is, it's in line with our spirit and our understanding of international law. If you see earlier, we were part of NAM. Even now, you know, we try to be neutral. And we are well respected in, uh, in the, both in the developed country circle and in the developing country circle, because India has maintained that kind of a balance. So I, this even this model BIT is an attempt towards that, and you know, and one cannot, uh, you know, you quantity cannot be the only criteria to see success, right? Me having thirty or uh, hundred treaties is not uh, the relevant sign, according to me, of whether the you know there has been a successful negotiation. A successful negotiation is where both sides have uh, you know end up agreeing to. Uh, a treaty which which helps both the countries and balances the interests of the states and the investors having a skewed uh, treaty and you know successfully negotiating it and having 100 treaties which india did before at that time it was required we had 90 treaties but if you see the united states or if you see many of the developing developed countries they have fewer treaties they don't sign treaties with everyone they they were they were targeted treaties and generally the developed countries entered into these treaties with developing countries it's it's very clear i mean one cannot forget the historical background one should not also we we are defined by that as well we know how these uh, capital exporting countries have that capital today there is a history behind it there is colonial history why they have all this capital now they accumulated all the capital and then they say the conditions for you receiving back this capital that we accumulated through exploitation of the developing countries will be in this manner despite that and and, and that's the beauty of it despite that the developing countries understand you know we every no, no one is looking to be a revolutionary 
they're participating in the system they are negotiating the treaties and uh, they they also legitimately believe and if you see india as a uh, you know a state as a sovereign state uh, our consistently we have respected international law consistently we have there are maybe there may be some outlier cases which are uh, you know which may be mandated for other reasons because one can, international law itself keeps changing over time there is a temporal change that you know temporal change brings about change in international law as well but the point is you see recently the italian marines case india respected the tribunal decision the supreme court ended the case there and then when you see india's uh, you know decision with bangladesh where uh, you know much one would say that we lost that case to a large extent because bangladesh got much a larger chunk of the bay of bengal but uh, we accepted that unlike you know some some of our neighbors who are not who have no respect for international law and try to you know uh, dictate uh, terms to everyone by might india is not like that and uh, to to portray it in that manner is uh, it's easy to do and government due to its nature to the very nature of government how large it is and the you know the secrets that are there because they are they are bound by official secrets there are so many other concerns you know they cannot respond to every statement or else i mean i'm sure that the government ha- has its reasons i'm not, i'm not here as a spokesperson of the government but uh, th- this is the i mean this is the reality having uh, what what i have yeah. seen is it may not be perfect but the intentions are genuine right the bona fide right right sir i think i can keep having this conversation for as long as in fact if it were to me i could actually make this conversation chapter by chapter about every aspect of international investment treaty talking from one aspect to the other but um there's so much i can take away from your time sir so i'll try to conclude this conversation now um it it's been absolutely wonderful the opportunity to speak with you and to learn about especially investment arbitration uh something that i absolutely love and everyone who is uh, interested in would absolutely love this episode to what lens you have gone to to how in depth your answers were thank you so much sir for that and uh, for anyone who by the way is curious about this bangladesh land dispute that india had with i have had a conversation with mr zafar kurshid about a similar topic he wrote an article on which you can find in the description um nonetheless uh, thank you so much sir before we wrap this conversation up do you have any closing remarks no no i was uh, was thank you for having me and uh, i hope i was able to address the queries you had uh, this is a ever evolving field and uh, there's a lot of opportunities for many you know all of us and all young lawyers to explore this field and contribute right so, sir thank you once again <laughs> thank you so much it was truly an honor and i absolutely am looking forward to the nearest possible uh opportunity where i can speak with you again and possibly host you on the podcast thank you so much for joining me thank you yeah, so much for your you. time sir